Good morning. So we're in Luke. We've got two readings. We're going to start at chapter 23 at verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the King of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Go over to chapter 24. We'll go from 36 to verse 53. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. 
Thanks, Emma. Morning, folks. Welcome along to Wagga Evangelical Church. Let me add my welcome to Mike's. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. It is lovely to see so many visitors here on Easter Sunday. Uh, it's so great that you could stick around. Please do stick around for a cuppa. I'd love to be able to meet you and, and have others uh, meet you also afterwards. Um, we are really in part two, Easter part two. Good Friday, Easter Sunday, they sort of go together, don't they? And we've been looking at this theme of words from the cross over this Easter period. On Friday, part one, we looked at God's justice in the cross of Christ. And today we're going to look at God's mercy in the resurrection. But before we dive in, as we always do and as we always should, let's pray and ask God to help us, would you? Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the option, for the opportunity to gather under your word to hear the proclamation of your mercy as exhibited through the uh, the gracious sacrifice of Christ and the cross for us. And not just in his cross, but in his resurrection, Lord, that we now have the hope of forgiveness and eternal life with you, all through what you've done for us in Jesus. Help us to see that, grab it, hold it, and praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, on Friday, I asked you what you thought the word justice meant. That was really the big theme of it. We went through and had a bit of a squeeze and a talk about that. Today, I want you to think about what mercy means. What does mercy mean to you? You've heard the word before. What do you think of when you hear it? If you're like me, if you're a child of the 80s, you might have heard me use this illustration before. But you might think of that finger wrestling game you played in the schoolyard. You know the one they call mercy? It's where you get someone's hands and you bend them back to the point where... They can take no more and they cry out, mercy, mercy. Ah! You know that one? Or maybe you think of the catchphrase of Uncle Jesse from the character sitcom, uh, from the character uh, in the sitcom Full House. Have mercy. You know that one? John Stamos, smoky tones, smouldering good looks. I don't think of that personally. No idea. Um, How did this get in my sermon? Quickly, next, next slide. Let's move along. Here's a dictionary definition of mercy. Mercy, number one, compassionate treatment, especially of those under one's power. Or a disposition to be kind and forgiving. Or something for which to be thankful, a blessing. I think it's that first definition that springs to mind for me. It's especially as it relates. That's why I love that idea of the game of the finger wrestling and the game of mercy. Because by the time you need to call out mercy, you really are under the power of another. (laughs) You really are needing and your expression of mercy is a cry out for them to show compassion to end your pain. You can't make them, they must exhibit it. And I want us to spend a few few minutes this morning on this Easter Sunday thinking about God's mercy displayed and on offer to people like us in the death and the resurrection of Jesus on that very first Easter morning two and a bit thousand years ago. And when we, th- when we talk theologically about God's mercy, I think we ought to think about it as one of the specific aspects of God's overall goodness. In-, in fact, I want to touch on three specific aspects of God's goodness this morning, as demonstrated in the cross of Christ. You'll see them on the screen. The first is God's mercy, referring to God's goodness towards those in misery or distress. The second being God's grace, God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. And the third being God's patience, that is God's goodness in withholding punishment for a time from those who deserve it immediately. Three aspects I want to touch on. Now, that's not exhaustive in any, term, in, any, in any way, shape or form in terms of the different facets of God's goodness, but just the ones I want to touch on today. And how do we see these three aspects play out through the death and resurrection of Jesus? 
Well, actually, before we even get to the cross and resurrection, I hope that you realise that these character traits of God have been on display from the beginning. And I mean from the beginning. Most especially, in fact, you see them from Genesis 3 onwards. Now, just to refresh your memory, if you're not sure what Genesis 3 says, it's about God's goodness, especially his grace and his patience, that were present and expressed even at the origin of human sinfulness. Even in the fall of Adam and Eve, if you remember, even at that moment when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, disobeyed his commands and tried to reject his authority over their life, God was patient and gracious with them beyond anything you could imagine or expect. He was patient in that he didn't strike them dead on the spot, which he had the right to do. In fact, we heard it in the kids' talk. The wages of sin is death. That's absolutely bang on accurate. And God can call that debt in at any time from anyone. So it's not just Adam and Eve here that benefited. In fact, everyone here is a recipient of God's patience at this point by definition. If you're still upright, it's because God hasn't called your debt in yet. But also God's graciousness to Adam and Eve is on display even after their first act of sinful rebellion. Look at this in Genesis 3.21. Before God sort of strangely honours their rebellion by kicking them out of the garden, he graciously acts towards them. Genesis 3.21, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. In other words, he looked at their pathetic attempts to cover their nakedness and the shame and the vulnerability they now felt because of their sinful rejection. You remember what they were? Pitiful fig leaves? Roughly sewn together? What was holding them on? I've got no idea. And God graciously gave them a better covering before he kicks them out. Animal skins. Coverings that would offer some warmth outside of God's paradise because now it's going to get cold. Coverings that would offer some protection from the elements because now it's going to get hot. The elements are going to be harsh at both ends in a fallen creation. If you live in Wagga, you know what I'm talking about. He provides them coverings that provide some sort of durability. Because now they're going to have to grow their food. They're going to have to work for it. In fact, God says to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food. By the sweat of your brow, you'll provide for Eve. Genesis 3.19. Now, full disclosure here, I've never tried to tend a crop dressed only in fig leaf apparel. I'm just going to put it out there. I don't know if any other farmers here have done so. Anyone want to chip in? Dave, walk. Jacob, you mentioned you're a farmer. Never tried this out? I don't know. Chris Everingham here, somehow I can strangely imagine him having... (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I've never done it, but I don't think they'd be in any way what you describe as adequate for the task. Fig leaf coverings, not adequate, not from any angle, particularly worse from particular angles. But God's goodness and his graciousness are seen in these coverings. He treats Adam and Eve better than they deserve. They deserve death and God is patient with them. Delaying punishment and then graciously clothing them, at least to partially cover their nakedness, their vulnerability and their shame. And it's not just in the skin clothing that depicts God's grace to the fallen humanity at this point. Even he's banishing them from the garden. Do you realise that is an act of his grace? Genesis 3.22 should flash up on the screen for you. It tells us that God done this. He did this to prevent Adam and Eve from reaching out and taking from the tree of life, which would cause them to live forever in a state 
of naked shame and rebellion against God. And mercifully, that isn't God's intention for them. And so he casts them out. Not just with clothes, not just to prevent them from living in perpetual rebellion against him, but he casts them out with a promise too. Do you remember 3.15? Genesis 3.15 where God promises that the offspring of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. In other words, God has no intention of the serpent's influence having the final say on humanity. The sinful, humanity, the sinful rebellion that Satan kicked off in his temptation of Adam and Eve will one day be reversed. It will be crushed by an offspring of the woman. God's goodness in his mercy can be seen here and in this future promise. For those who are now plunged into a state of misery and distress, as Adam and Eve are now only too fully aware of. Now, if this is, if this, at this point, if you're wondering why I'm labouring Genesis, <laughs> that's a fair question. And I'm labouring it because Jesus is the fulfilment of that promise. I'm labouring it because Jesus is not plan B. Jesus was not an afterthought. In fact, in the mind, in the plans, in the intentions of God, from the beginning, before the foundations of the world, Jesus is the plan. He's the offspring of the woman. He's the snake crusher. He's the one who will finally reverse the effects of the fall. He's the fuller, better covering to deal with nakedness, shame, guilt and sin because he's the one who will one day clothe his people with his righteousness. Meaning they can once again stand in right relationship with God, free from sinful guilt and rebellion. In other words, Jesus is the full expression of God's goodness to humanity. He is the full expression of his patience, of his grace, of his mercy even from the beginning. That's why it's so good when you read the Bible from beginning to end and you see it's all preparing us for Jesus as the full, the final and the only solution to humanity's biggest problem, our alienation from God. It's all about Jesus. It's true in the beginning. Does it work out in the end? Does this work out in the cross of Christ? Absolutely it does. Just look with me a little bit here. Look at the way that Jesus perfectly personifies God's mercy in his death and in his resurrection. Let's have a look at a couple of words from the cross, if you will. Actually, in these first couple of examples, they're words on the way to the cross. Look at with me, Luke 23, 28 to 31. We just heard Emma read it out for us. It'll flash up on the screen. I won't read it out at length. I'll pick up some bits and pieces. But essentially, even as Jesus is making his way to his place of execution... Mind you, so badly beaten that he can't even carry his own cross member at this point. They lump that on someone else. And there's a crowd of women who are wailing and mourning. Now, are they mourning because they're sad about what's happening? Possibly. It's also possible that they're part of the pageantry of the execution. Paid wailers, just to add to the atmosphere. You can imagine that being the case too. And Jesus at this point, walking past a crowd of women wailing and mourning, has not just the presence of mind, let alone the strength, but he redirects his attention. In fact, he redirects their attention, not to his plight, but to their own plight. What? <laughs> Have a look at what he says here. Verse 28. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For there will come a time when they will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that have never borne. 
and the breasts have never nursed. And then he quotes Hosea 10.8, referring to the people's right reaction when they realize the enormity of God's wrath against their sin and idolatry. And they say, mountains, cover us, fall on us, hills, cover us. In other words, the horror of God's judgment has just landed and it is so real and so pressing and so personal that people beg to be swallowed up by an avalanche as if that would be any protection from God's wrath. Hills cover us? Where can I go to get away from the wrath that is coming? Mountains cover me! And Jesus says this here, in his execution unfolding, Because it is the height of human sinful rebellion against God. Here, we think we can kill him. (laughs) Here, humanity says it can all be over. Let's kill the king. We think that we've successfully stormed the castle in the kingdom of heaven and captured the throne. And we're all guilty of this because all of us walk around wearing these pretend crowns and claim to be a sovereign over our own lives and experience. And Jesus is saying at that point, I feel sorry for you guys. What? (laughs) Don't feel sorry for me, he says to these women. This is going to work out way worse for you at this rate. It would be better if you didn't have any kids if they're just going to face God's wrath in the end. Wow. And it's not as if Jesus' expression of mercy, this incomprehensible other-person-centred thinking stops there. Look at verse 34. The same chapter. Verse 34. Do you notice Jesus' words as, as he's being crucified now? Like as in at the time where he is literally nailed hands and feet to a wooden cross, hoisted into the air so that people can get a good gander at him and continuing the mocking and humiliation as he struggles in agony, slowly dying. At that point, what does he... Did you notice what he says in verse 34? Verse 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now, if there's ever been a more merciful phrase uttered in the history of the universe... I will hop on one leg to Burke. This is the most extreme example being communicated of mercy. Jesus pleading that the Father's goodness, his forgiveness and his mercy for those who are presently expressing the most heinous act of treason possible. Who don't even realise the firestorm of judgment they are kindling for themselves before God. Jesus here pleads for God the Father to show mercy to them. Pleading his suffering as the worthy fitting substitute to absorb God's right wrath instead of pouring it out on those people, on us. Can you even comprehend that? I've seen people struggle to show grace and mercy to their kids because they haven't had their morning cup of coffee yet. I see mostly in the mirror. And yet here, at the moment of the most excruciating, undeserved agony, Jesus is expressing a divine desire for mercy from the very ones torturing him. Have you ever heard of such a thing? I mean, just have a little sip on that, folks. That is unparalleled mercy, expressed by the one with all the power, expressed for the worst offenders, expressed for people like you and us. You and I, 
you and us. <laughs> I mean, I haven't made mention of it here, but you see it in verses 42 and 43 as well. You know why it's we're the worst offenders as well? Jesus' moment on that cross next to the criminal who says to him, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He doesn't once profess his innocence. In fact, he says quite the opposite. I'm here because I deserve it. And yet, Jesus, I know you don't. Would you remember me? At no point did that man ever exhibit or ever evidence to anybody uh, in his family that he'd become a believer. Never once shared the gospel with anyone. Jesus didn't call an end of the show for a minute, take out the nails of his hands and say, let's just baptise you first, brother, because that's going to... No. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Don't go for the deathbed confession, but it's possible. (laughs) Have you ever heard of such a thing? And it doesn't end on the cross, but amazingly continues in the resurrection. Skip forward three days. Jesus is now confirmed dead. He's wrapped. He's buried in a tomb. And then on the Sunday morning, the tomb is empty. Some of the women followers of Jesus, they've reported they've seen him alive. And the rest of the disciples are understandably in a state of disbelief and shock, even as Jesus rocks up amongst them. What do you imagine? (laughs) Just put put yourself in the place of the disciples for a minute. You just heard this kooky story about Jesus, that guy you just saw executed pretty horrendously. He's alive? Is that an exciting exciting thing or is that a terrifying thing? Because we just ditched him royal. (laughs) What would you imagine his first words would be when he shows up? What would you do? What would you say to a bunch of your so-called friends who abandoned you, who denied they knew you, who left you for dead at your moment of greatest need and then hid out for fear of their own safety? I can guarantee I wouldn't be saying and thinking what Jesus says in verse 36. This is what he says. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Peace, Peace be with you. God's first instance is not to exact revenge. It's not to call them a bunch of so and so, son of a bang, son of a boom. And that's what I'd be going for. It's to offer peace. It's to comfort those in misery and distress. That's mercy. It's to reinforce this further as he acts mercifully to comfort them, to ease the distress of the disciples, who must be at this point absolutely out of their mind and having kittens on the floor. Here's where he says to them, verse 39, come come and touch me. See, look at my hands and look at my feet. Realize it's me. And then furthermore explains that this has happened in this way, verse 44, reminding them now generously of the things he'd previously told them, how this has all been pointed to by the Old Testament. Everything that's written must be fulfilled about me. And even more mercifully, if it's possible, verse 45, he miraculously helps them to understand how this all can be so. Look at verse 45. Tell me that, I w- that you don't need this too, because I do. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. He says, you guys are the witnesses of that. Friends, do you hear this? The goodness of God, the mercy of Jesus, it did not terminate there on the disciples, rather through their witness to this universe-altering event in history, you and I now stand to benefit from the same goodness of God, the same grace and mercy and patience secured and offered through Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Friends, have you recognized that? Have you accepted and thanked God for his goodness to you in Christ personally? Have you acknowledged his patience towards you, not killing you stone dead the first moment you sinned against him? He could. He hasn't. Have you delighted in his grace, extended towards you, offering forgiveness through Jesus and his work on your behalf, rather than the wrath you deserve? And are you praising him and living in response to the mercy that he measures out in abundance to all who realise the misery and distress, not just of life here in a fallen creation, but the misery and the distress of an eternity later separated from anything good, God? Friends, have you come to terms with this fact? Have you come to terms with that? This is not just what Easter is about. This is, in fact, what all of life is about. It's all about God's goodness expressed and offered to his creation at great inconvenience, at great expense, at great cost, at great pain to unworthy and undeserving sinners like us. And somehow all of that only serves to magnify his goodness even more. Can I be a thousand percent clear here? I mean, I'm always trying to be a thousand percent clear, but can I be... I find it really difficult as a preacher of God's word to know if I'm getting the balance right. To know if I'm getting the balance right between trying to motivate people to fear God's wrath and therefore come to Christ, which you ought, and also to right recognise his great love and his great mercy and so come to Christ, which you ought. Because it's not an either-or scenario here, it's a both-and. And the truth of it is, I know some of us need a rocket. I needed to be smashed between the eyes with the horror and the weight of my sin at the judgment of God, because I didn't fear him enough. That's some of you. Others here are all too aware of their own failings. They understand God's wrath has steadily built against them, and it's a right reward for their, it's a right wage for their sin. And you need to hear God's consolation, God's comfort, the wonderful news that your shame and nakedness, your guilt and sin have been covered in Christ. He's a better covering than animal skins, much better than fig leaves. And God's word, is, God's word is doing both. God's word constantly does both. It corrects and it comforts. It condemns and then relieves. Unapologetically, God's word will point out to you the horror of the problem so that you might marvel at the greatness of the solution. I don't know which one you need right now. I don't know which one personally you need, the rocket or the hand on the shoulder. So let me finish with just this. God have mercy. Would you pray with me? Father, it is what we need. It is what you're able to provide in abundance. It's mercy that we need, Father. Out of your goodness, Father, we pray that you would give us what we need. That through pleasure or pain, in trials or triumph, that we would know and trust and tell of your greatness to us in Christ Jesus that we would speak of it constantly, praise you for it endlessly, that we would see in the horror of the truth of our sin the magnificence of your mercy. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.